If you have arrived here searching for classical music, well, you're not going to be disappointed. There will be some. But first, welcome to the Rockstar Violinist Podcast, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the most versatile string players on the planet. I actually had to convince our guest that she should be on this podcast. After all, despite what you're hearing right now, she's not really known as an electric violinist. But it's hard to dispute that Rachel Barton Pine is a rock star violinist. So here we are. Everyone in the classical world is well acquainted with Rachel Barton Pine and her wide range of tastes in music. She's well known as a metalhead who's just as happy to play Ozzy as Paganini or Bach on her 1742 Guarneri del Gesù violin. She owns a number of instruments, including the six-string viper she's playing with her band Earth and Grave in the recording you're hearing just now. I could go on for hours about Rachel, and what was scheduled as a one-hour chat actually turned into nearly two hours. So we're going to break this interview into two episodes. And since she can tell her story far better than I can, let's get right to my chat with Rachel Barton Pine, rock star violinist. What is it that got you interested in playing works by black composer? So, well, to give you the long version of the answer, normally I'm like, to give you the short version, but to give you the long version of the answer. Um, so it kind of goes back to um, when I was you know, a little kid, I started playing violin because I had seen some middle school age girls playing violin in my church, and I was just really intrigued by the sound of it. So I was three years old and begged for lessons, and there was a teacher in my neighborhood, and my parents let me start lessons, and I just totally fell in love with it and became obsessed by it, really, to the point where I, you know, became really, really intense and um, needed to go to a more elite program off in the northern suburbs. And um, so every day I would come home from school and, you know, do my homework in the car on the way to rehearsal and then eat my dinner in the car on the way back from rehearsal. Never had time to hang out with kids. So in third grade, my um, elementary school principal suggested that I stop going to school. And I have to, you know, say, no, I did not get expelled. But um, this was actually really kind of saved my childhood, helped make it more normal, ironically, to not be going to school because... I could get all my academic work done in far fewer hours doing it on your own. You can just, you know, whip right through it. You can spread it out over seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, and then practice during school hours and hang out with your friends in the afternoon like a normal kid. So this was a great blessing and, you know, kind of amazing to think back that the school principal actually suggested that. Um, it was a little Lutheran school, um, and I think it was really, you know, driven by the fact that he was a person of faith and believed that this was a gift that I had that needed to be nurtured and, and also thinking of what would be best for me as a person. But homeschooling in those days was not as widespread nor as socially acceptable. And so um, thankfully my parents were willing to embark upon this adventure. Um, but what's, what's interesting is that, you know, we started, uh, this was in the days before the internet when you could just get everything prefabricated and log on and learn whatever, and um, which, you know, in a way is more stressful because everybody had to figure it out on their own, but also uh, more, more freedom. Um, nowadays it's like, oh yeah, just click on and done. And I think people aren't, um, getting as much from their homeschooling as, as they could in, in many cases. So we were homeschooling, you know, just f for the, the schedule, right? So we were in a program that catered to, like, um, child actors, Olympians, things like that. 
And we started to fall into what's called the unschooling um, approach. I don't like that term. It kind of sounds like unlearning, which is like forgetting. <laughs> it's right. actually about learning, but unschooling, I guess, just to indicate that it's not following the same sort of pattern that school follows. Um, the way that I describe it is twofold. Um, Learner-directed interests and binge learning. So if you became randomly curious about whatever, you could go to the library and bring home a dozen books on the topic, and you could stay on that subject until you were satiated. You didn't have to, okay, the week is over, now it's time to go on to the next unit, or enough right. of that for the day we have today to do today's math. It's like, no, we can do math next month. As long as you know it all by the end, it doesn't matter what order you learn it in. And if you learn something at the moment in time when you're enthusiastic about learning about it, then you're going to learn about it better. Um, now, granted, there are some things that I was never enthusiastic about learning. I had to eventually buckle down and force myself through my grammar textbook. Um, but most things I was interested at one moment or another. And what the reason I'm mentioning that is that it started to spill out into my musical life, where I would go to the library and get a book about the composer that I was, uh, whose piece I was studying. And then I'd be like, hmm, okay, so that guy was from um, mid-19th century Russia. What in the world was mid-19th century Russia? And then I would get a book on that and, you know, look at the footnotes and get an article from, you know, whatever. And it just led you down all these paths. And, and then, of course, about different kinds of music, learning about um, early music with all of my, you know, gut-string Baroque playing, for example, and um, digging up composers that um, aren't as well-known. And, um, and I had the luxury of time to do that, and also the, the nurturing of curiosity, which so many kids are, no, don't have time for that and aren't in an environment that promotes that. Um, so fast forward to when I was 17, I was concertmaster of the Chicago Symphony's training ensemble. It wasn't a, what you would call a youth orchestra. Um, it was actually a kind of a pre-professional ensemble, mostly grad, uh, well, undergrad, grad, and postgrad students who were aiming for professional orchestra careers. And because I was homeschooled, I had the time and um, I was pretty advanced, so I was able to be in that group. And um, at that particular moment in 92, um, we were doing a concert of all black composers, mostly living composers or dead composers from the 20th century, but I was asked to give the world the modern-day world premiere of a recently rediscovered concerto from the classical period, from the late 1700s. And I was just fascinated to know that um, these works existed, that they were as beautiful as they were. And, you know, to learn about, start to learn about these composers' lives, it turned out that Chicago is, or was for many decades, home to the Center for Black Music Research, the only such facility in the nation. Um, not just classical, all kinds of genres, whatever, you know, from hip-hop to Caribbean to... Um, everything, but um, lots and lots of information about classical music um, by really dedicated scholars, and um, and then also, of course, Chicago was is still home to the Chicago Sinfonietta, one of the most diverse orchestras in the country, founded by African American conductor Paul Freeman. Um, one of your other guests, um, Chuck Bontrager, regularly plays in that orchestra. Um, so. Not enough going on, um, but you know, and the Chicago Symphony didn't play enough diverse works. I'm still working on that, but but there was still more going on in Chicago than in many other cities, and so I was aware of this slice of the repertoire um, to a greater degree than a lot of teenagers um, who happened to be living in different cities, and um, really was interested in learning more about this stuff. And so, um, when it came time for my first concerto record, my record company very candidly, oh sorry, I'm squeaking my music, one sec. <laughs> when, it, when it came time to make my first concerto record, my record company very candidly 
told me that I wasn't quite famous enough yet to record the most famous concertos. Of course, since then, I've recorded the Brahms and Beethoven and Mendelssohn and all of those great concertos, um, and people, you know, actually want to hear my version of them. Um, but at the time, you know, when I was, you know, much younger, it was like, okay, well, what's something we can do with interesting repertoire where people might buy the album because they're curious to hear the pieces, even if they've never heard of the soloist. So I said, well, there was this great French piece that I played in 92 a few years ago. Um, maybe we could see what might go with that. So we were like, well, should we do other um, 18th century works or what should we do? And I was like, well, let me go over to Center for Black Music Research and see what else is there. And I ended up discovering some Afro-Caribbean and Afro-European composers from the 17 and 1800s that were just great, great music. And you know, I kind of naively wasn't even thinking about the social justice element. Diversity was not a conversation we were having in classical music yet. I was just like, this is exciting music. I want to play it. And it's really you know, sad that it hasn't been known about and heard all along, and I want to remedy that, you know, just kind of for the sake of the music, really. And so I, I put out this album, and it got such an overwhelming response, um, first of all, from the media. Um, gosh, I even got, uh, well, this is a funny story. <laughs> Probably listeners to your, your show will appreciate. Um, it was my first and thus far only appearance in Playboy. Um, All right. So, of course, it was a CD review, right? Uh, which was a real coup because, uh, I mean, back, that's back in the day when that magazine, you know, had a large readership. And they only reviewed three albums a month of all genres. So to get in there as a classical album was just, like, amazing. And um, it also afforded me the wonderful opportunity to tease each of my friends one by one by saying, guess what? I'm in Playboy. Pause to see the expression on their face. <laughs> it's a CD review. <laughs> but anyways, um, what also happened is that I started getting a lot of requests from students and parents and teachers asking me, you know, where can I find music by black composers? for my kid to learn. And I was like, well, I'm not the expert. I just know these few concertos that I recorded. Um, but I realized that a lot of the work that I was drawing upon by, by wonderful you know, scholars and researchers was not being disseminated to the general public. I also started getting invited to sit on diversity panels um, and participate in these kinds of conversations, which I felt very underqualified for at that time you know, 20 years ago. But um, I realized I could learn so much, and I was you know, already very passionate about music education, about music advocacy, access to classical music, and so on. So I thought, well, you know, this really fits a lot of my values, and let's see, see what's going on. And so I was hearing about programs or teachers that were working with underrepresented populations around the country that didn't have materials that spoke to those children's backgrounds and experiences, and that, you know, of course, you give any little kid a violin, they're going to be like, this is awesome. But unfortunately, yeah. with um, African-American um, families, sometimes you would have you know, families or friends saying to this kid, this is somebody else's music. This isn't a black thing to do. And I knew that wasn't true, that there are hundreds of composers from, you know, from centuries, from all over the planet, who had written great music. And it's the things like you know, all black orchestras of the 1800s here in America that were the equivalent of the Negro Baseball Leagues about the fact that Frederick Douglass was a serious violinist, his grandson became a professional violinist, the fact that Coretta Scott King had a college degree in violin performance and then kind of gave it up when she you know, was supporting her husband and his work, but um, their children all learned classical instruments, including violin. Um, 
you know, this is clearly a black thing to do, and people just didn't know, you know, and you and the issue of representation. I mean, places like Sphinx, where I'm on the board, have been doing wonderful work for so many years and have really created so much change. Um, giving more opportunities to young people of color and lifting up um, you know, all the great ones that are out there so that they're much more visible. But nonetheless, you can still go to an average town somewhere in the US and maybe that town's professional orchestra doesn't have a single player who looks like you. Maybe there's not a single music teacher in town at the public school and at the community music school who looks like you. And so it's harder to see a future for yourself in light of that. Um, so we conceived of the idea of creating pedagogical volumes that would present you know, all of these great men and women um, of African descent, um, along with feature articles about history, a profile of each composer with their visual image, and role model profiles, um, interviewing those who grew up playing violin who have gone on to various careers, soloist, string quartet member, um, Broadway pit player, uh, Suzuki teacher, um, youth orchestra conductor, music administrator, fiddler, you know, just whatever people do with their violin, except it's an African-American person doing it. And we have an interview with them where they tell you all about their life and give you advice. So that's been incredibly rewarding. We've got our first volume out and um, much more on the way. Our, mus our website, musicbyblackcomposers.org, has lots and lots of resources from repertoire directories, discographies, children's books, um, our own coloring book that we published with 40 composers and their stories. Um, and we also have um, repertoire directories where you can find the music um, and, you know, ask us questions and um, give us suggestions. And we've got a projects timeline on our about section, which tells you everything that we've done, everything that we're planning to do. So it's um, been a lot of fun to be working on this. I, st I had started it in 2001 um, because I had started a not-for-profit foundation in response to the circumstances of my childhood, you know, where it was like, okay, how are we going to buy groceries and put gas in the car to drive to your lessons and pay for your sheet music and buy new strings for your violin and pay your piano accompanist because a 100% scholarship doesn't cover any of those things. Um, so I'd started this not-for-profit for young artist support with instrument loans and financial assistance and then when this Black Composers Project was staring me in the face, I was like, okay, um, I think I'm meant to do this. And obviously not on my own. I, I was lucky to recruit an incredible board of advisors from some of the leading researchers, conductors, professors, Suzuki teacher trainers, um, performers, and so on, composers, of course, um, who have really helped guide um, our plans and contribute their expertise. So it's been a, a collective effort and, um, yeah, just so much fun. So being on lockdown these last um, months, I haven't had to resort to binge watching or pandemic baking because it's like, okay, now I'm <laughs> home with my physical library every single day. I can get work done more expeditiously than ever before. And with our current social moment, it's there's more interest in this. And I'm just so glad that I've been doing it for so many years already because people um, all of a sudden, you know, it's just exponentially increased how many people want this information. And luckily, I already had a lot of it that I was able to give to them. Yeah. Speaking of Rachel's recordings of music by black composers, here's her version of Little Diamond, Bird on the Wing Jigs by Noel da Costa.
Yeah, I've actually seen your library, and it's it's like this whole huge room in your house. It's like floor <laughs> to ceiling shelves and sheet music. I, sheet how music, many sheet pieces music. of music do you have? Yeah, I guess people who are just in, who are, you know, I, I was about to say just, I don't mean it that way. People who are master improvisers um, who can just jam, they don't need any of that sheet music. But um, yeah, I have, for example, the world's largest collection of music for unaccompanied violin. Um, which I inherited from the foremost researcher of that topic um, from Sweden. Um, yeah, all kinds of stuff in there. It's just endless. And, of course, in a fun instrument collection with my, um, I mean, I have not one but three violas d'amore, and I've got a Renaissance violin and a Baroque violin, and, of course, a Flying V electric six-string, which is, I think, why I'm on your show. But um, And, of course, my 1742 Guarneri del Jesu, which is my... Um, priceless well of course it's not mine really i'm it's it's companion but it belongs to my generous patron and um so lucky to to have that with me and now my daughter has a baroque violin a regular violin which is of course a modernized antique um from the 18th century and then she has a viola and an electric violin and now that she's going to be switching from half size to three-quarter size i'm like oh no i gotta get her four right. new violins not just one <laughs> Well, you know, you can't have too many. That's our theory, you know. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, I'm not a gearhead. You know, I don't do pedals and all that. I admire those who do. It's never been my thing. I'm like, I don't want to play the violin with my feet. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm a gearhead when it comes to our, you know, kind of acoustic amplifiers, which, of course, is the wooden body of every right. bowed stringed instrument. Well, so, I mean, that's one of the, we say that you're a violinist, but you're really a multi-instrumentalist. And, and you've got a ton of different instruments, like you were saying. So maybe talk about some of the instruments that you've got and maybe dig a little deeper on the history of those and where, what was written for those. Yeah, well, I actually just call myself a violinist because ultimately I'm very single-minded. Everything I play, everything I do comes back to the violin. Like even when I was 10 years old and my grandmother taught me how to crochet and my, my mother was like so relieved because she thought this is so healthy, something that doesn't have anything to do with schoolwork or practicing. <laughs> and as soon as I understood the mathematical concepts of creating shapes out of yarn, I invented a pattern for a crocheted violin and I, I like never made anything else after that. So I was hopeless, <laughs> but um, yeah, I go to an art gallery. I'm like, okay, where are the paintings that have violins on them? Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. But um, anyhow, yeah, so I have a medieval Rebec, which is the ancestor of the violin, um, you know, popular from the 1050s to about the 1550s. I have a pochette, which was the dancing master's fiddle, the miniature violin body, smaller than a child's fiddle, but with a grown-up size neck that you could carry around in your pocket when you traveled by foot or even on horseback, like Thomas Jefferson had one. Um, and he'd go riding from town to town with his pocket fiddle in his pocket. Um, I've got a Renaissance violin, which is actually, because the violin family of instruments was invented around the 1490s. And what's interesting is I always bring electric violin into the conversation when I'm talking about early music, because it's a continuum. Um, in fact, you know, people who are like hardcore, you know, historically informed, whatever, will say that actually what we call the regular violin, the normal violin, or just the violin, um, you know, strung with metal, unamplified it's just a violin and then anything else you do to it needs a modifier an electric violin an extended range violin a baroque violin right but when you say a violin we mean a certain thing 
But there are people who will say that's wrong. The violin was the way it was when it was invented, and er everything since then should be a modifier. So our most commonly played instrument today, um, the acoustic version, should actually be called like you know the modernized violin or the romantic violin or something, and the violin should be the baroque violin. Um, but anyway, um, invented around the 1490s, and it's an interesting story of why the violin family got invented in the first place that um, not a lot of people know. Basically, at that time, there were the bowed string ancestors of the violin, the rebec, which is a three-string instrument um, on a body that's kind of half, half gourd-shaped um, and with a flat top, um, actually kind of a cousin of the Middle Eastern rebab, um, which used to have the strings kind of struck, um, plucked or struck, and then it was the innovation was to you know make it out of wood and draw a bow across the string. And of course, the medieval bows were literally just a curved piece of yew wood. They looked like a hunting bow, an arrow bow, and with the horsehair and the rosin, and then you would draw it across the strings, and the instrument would sing. And it was you know better than anything before because you didn't have to stop to take a breath, and you could I don't know I think strings are the best, um, but. This instrument was tuned in fifths. It only had three strings. It didn't come, these string instruments didn't come in sizes and families. They just kind of had their own role. Um, the VL or the medieval fiddle was another one. It was more of a large size droney instrument with like five strings, sometimes a couple of extra drone strings, kind of large viola sized instrument. The viol eventually morphed into the Renaissance fiddle, um, otherwise known as the lira de braccio, which was the instrument that Leonardo da Vinci played. Um, very improvisatory instrument, um, played back up to vocals and things like that. Not a lot of written music for the lira de braccio specifically, um, and it kind of took the place of the medieval viol. So you, at the point that the violins were invented, you had the lira de braccio, which had a very violin-shaped body. Um, but was tuned quarterly. And then the Rebec, which, whose, whose construction was nothing like a violin, but which was tuned in fifths. And the genius move was to combine the best elements of both of those, the tuning in fifths and the shape of the body, the acoustic sound box, and come up with this new instrument. And the reason the violin family of instruments was invented was because Isabel d'Este um, wanted um, you know, instruments for what they're used for at courts, to, to, to be background music, to play concerts, to provide dancing, to provide, you know, accompaniment to singing, to do all those things that you needed your, your instruments to do and your, you know, your, your set of employees who played the instruments, your servants. Um, and normally in courts, you'd have bands of winds, you know, your shams in the various sizes, your recorders, your crumb horns, and so on. Uh, recorder is the one that people would recognize today as being in various sizes. And of course, back then in the 1400s, it would have been an even greater variety of sizes that could each play. You know, kind of take the equivalent of the soprano, alto, tenor, bass, um, choir kind of a concept. Um, this was not yet done in strings until the Isabel d'Este in the 1490s. And the reason she didn't want wind instruments for her court is because of their military and phallic associations, neither of which would be appropriate for the court of a lady. And so she needed to make the equivalent of that, but out of these beautiful bowed strings. And so there were two families invented simultaneously, the violas da gamba, which actually etymologically come from the lute kind of family of instruments. They're fretted, they have a flat back, um, and they're tuned um, quarterly. And uh, they, they came from a different ancestry than the, violin, the violins in their various sizes. And so you had violins as a concert, as kind of a, a band. Um, you'd have the little ones would be played on the arm, 
and they would all be made from the same tree, that particular ensemble, and they oh, were wow. kind of a blended set. Um, and that's what the violins were. And I have an instrument that sort of has those characteristics. I play slightly later music on it, like 1500s, early 1600s stuff that was starting to be more soloistic, um, but played on the arm, which actually, even if you're playing the same instrument and you hold it on the shoulder versus on the arm, it gives it a different tone quality because of the bow arm's different relationship to gravity. Um, yeah, so, and then the Baroque violin was a slight evolution of the modern violin, slightly longer fingerboards, slightly thicker bass bar, um, you know, slightly longer neck. Um, a lot of these modifications were done to make the instrument louder. Now, louder doesn't mean better. Well, some people would say louder is better. Okay, okay, okay. But, <laughs> you know, um, intellectually speaking, you know, louder is louder. And there might be circumstances where you would want something more um, detailed and intimate. And... So um, what we think of as the modern violin um, with the, the metal strings and the, the neck set on a steep angle, um, you know, kind of the thing that the Baroque violins all got their gender change operations to be made into modern violins in the late 1700s and thereafter violins were made in this new modern way. Um, that was really so that violinists could play in bigger halls, sell more tickets to more people, make more money. You know, we've, I like to say we went from 200 seat venues to 2,000 seat venues to 20,000 seat venues. Um, right. And every time it was about being louder and every time you gained volume, you lost subtlety. Um, and so people who say, oh, the electric violin can't do all the beautiful things the modern violin can, can do. I'll say, well, the modern violin can't do all the beautiful things the Baroque violin can do. And people are like, uh, 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 you just turned my own argument on me. <laughs> you know, and so, and also that, you know, it's just, there's no reason for players of one kind of violin to ever be discriminatory against. I mean, it's funny because um, as a primarily modern violinist, I had to kind of get some street cred going with my Baroque violin playing to show that I wasn't a dabbler, right? And so <laughs> I was doing like arm held and some of the, the more fringe stuff that not as many people get into um, to, you know, to get my early music bona fides. And it's funny because some some Baroque violinists will kind of giggle at people who are playing Renaissance violin. And I'm like, you know, a generation ago, everybody was giggling at you. Maybe you should think twice before you act discriminatory like that. <laughs> and, you know, and then all that, oh, we don't even want to get into it. But people who are like, you know, um, like those guys on YouTube who are like, oh, you know, electric violins are sacrilegious. Oh, yes, yes. My favorite word. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, so, and then um, the viola de more is actually considered to be a cousin of the violin or a kind of a violin. It's an instrument that was invented in the mid-1600s, and, you know, you can check out my Violin Adventures podcast for more in-depth on it and some of my YouTube videos and things like that, but the viola de more is a kind of a supplemental instrument, like nobody would just play that or start lessons on that, kind of like an oboe player will play the English horn on occasion, or mm. flute player will play the piccolo for a certain moment or a certain piece. So the viola de more doesn't have sizes or anything else, it's just, it is what it is, but it's called a viola de more, it doesn't make it a viola, like the alto member of the violin family, it's just etymologically viola meaning bowstring instrument, like a viola da gamba is a viola da gamba, it has nothing to do with a viola, right? It's played right. on the leg and, and so on. So a viola de more has a violin string length, but it has six or seven playing strings and an equal number of resonating strings, which I always refer to as acoustic reverb, um, yeah. and has a special silvery tone and um, 
the, the greatest violinist of the 1700s played Viola de Mare. So Locatelli in Italy, who was the proto-Paganini um, before Paganini, like the, the, he took technique like almost to that brink. Um, and then Piscindel, who was the greatest violinist in Germany at the time of Bach, the only other guy besides Bach who played the Bach solo, solo works um, at the time of Bach. Um, those guys were both virtuosos of the Viola de Mare. So I was like, okay, what is this Viola de Mare thing? And, you know, I ought to you know, be able to do something about this. So I got my hands on one and I fell in love with it, um, no pun intended. Um, and it was very humbling. It's like, okay, I thought I was a pretty decent violinist. You know, I can play all the Paganini Caprices in a single evening and all this. And I was like, okay, here I was on the Viola de Mori. My bow would be on string five and my finger would be on string six. And I was like completely discombobulated. It took me about three months to be able to play a scale in first position. Um, because the strings, you still got an acoustic sound box, which means you only have a certain number of degrees available to, to you from lowest to highest string without bumping the ribs of the instrument. So in order right. to fit in six or seven strings, each of them has to be a narrower angle than what you would normally get on a violin. Um, and so you had to adjust the angles of your arm um, to know where each string was, where you're going to find it. Um, totally different ball game than like just a five-string violin, which is you know still pretty close to what feels comfortable. So that was a big adjustment, but it was actually playing the viola de more that got me um, enthused about finally trying out a viper. Because Mark Wood and I had been teaching at Mark O'Connor's fiddle camps together on the faculty since the late '90s, and I was a big admirer of his. And um, you know, of course, I. Um, I'm sure we'll get into this, but I've been a metalhead since I was about 10 years old, and um, I thought it was so cool what Mark did, but it didn't, somehow coming from my sort of high-end classical training and, you know, being a soloist and all of that, like it just did, not in a discriminatory way, but it just didn't seem like something that I would do or that I would be comfortable doing personally or something like that. Like I'd rather cheer for others who are doing it. But then after I learned viola de more, I'm like, oh, wait a sec. I like having lots of strings. And then that kind of, kind of um, broke my my um, trepidation somehow about trying my hand at a at a viola at a at a viper. And you know, then of course, you know, playing in a doom band where I needed those loadouts. It was like, you know. A, I, I would have been just miserable if I, you know, G had been my lowest pitch and right. you know, that would have not been adequate. But yeah, so. This is another tune from Rachel's band Earth and Grave. This is called Dismal Times.
Yeah, I mean, the six string buys you, the two extra strings buy you more than another octave, right? Exactly, the C string of the viola and then an F below that, which gets into cello range. The viola de more, by the way, can go down to a, let me think here, so D, A, F, D, A, D, A. So the lowest note is a third below the C string of a viola, okay. if you have a seven string de more, which of course I do have um, for my um, sort of modern style um, my gorgeous 19th century instrument that I use when I solo Vivaldi concertos, for example, with modern orchestras. But then I have a Baroque de More in original condition, um, which is made by Galliano. And the amazing story is that my Baroque violin is also original condition. It, it never had its gender change operation. Mm. It's actually completely intact, which is miraculous for an instrument of its quality to not end up altered or in a museum. It's a Galliano um, from 1774, 1770, and I got it in London in 2001. And then 10 years later in New York is when I acquired the Galliano Viola de More. And it was at auction, so I, and it's the gut strings that were sitting on it were like decades old, so you couldn't even play it and hear what it sounded like. But it was oh, in wow. great health by a great maker, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna take a chance. And I brought it back to Chicago, and my luthier took one look at it and said, oh my gosh, your Galliano violin and your Galliano viola de more were both made from the same tree. So it was Holy like... Holy cow. It was like fate, like destiny for them to be reunited. And so it's, yeah, just lovely to get to play them on the same concert. Actually, I recorded on my Baroque de more the complete Vivaldi concertos for viola de more. And I thought that was going to be one of my more fringe albums, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. um, I mean, Vivaldi's famous, but, you know, it's not like my album of the Brahms Concerto or something. <laughs> and um, I thought it was, you know, kind of an artistic indulgence, so to speak. But it turned out that that was my first and thus far only album to have been picked up by a major Hollywood soundtrack. Um, that movie that won all the Oscars a couple of years ago, The Favorite with Olivia Coleman. Um, mm. Like, my Vivaldi de More concertos are a large part of that, that um, underscoring. And actually, if you go to, you don't even have to watch the movie, just go check out the trailer and you'll hear my Vivaldi blasting in there, setting the mood. And That's awesome. Interestingly, I got paid a lot more of royalties for the trailer than for the film, which surprised <laughs> me because I would have thought, okay, you know, it's a movie, right? That's It's longer, it's broadcast widely. But actually, um, apparently many, many more millions of people see a trailer than ever watch a movie, and you get paid for every time that trailer is watched, and so, yeah. So um, the viola... Well, everybody go watch the trailer. We gotta get Rachel paid. <laughs> so the viola de more went mainstream. That's awesome. So you talked a little bit about, like, the trajectory of, you know, we look at culture and art and how those are tied to instruments. Because when you look at the size of the venue, it says a lot about the culture and what the economics of the place are. And as Europe got richer and richer um, through the 1600s, 1700s, the venues got bigger, more people could afford to go to concerts. And so the instruments had to change with that. And of course, you play music from the 1400s through today. What are some, all, all the futurists that I know are actually historians and they sort of, they sort of draw these arcs and they go, okay, well, that tells us Maybe we can extrapolate out to the future. So knowing what you know about music history and where the instruments have come and gone, and where do you see the next hundred years in, in violin, in the instrument, in the playing, in the writing? Where, where do you see the future? What a fascinating question. In a way, I couldn't begin to speculate. I have absolutely no idea. But what I've, 
what I love doing is observing just in my own lifetime how things have positively changed. Now, there's still a lot in our violin culture that needs to be remedied. You know, there's um, and some things that have gone maybe in the wrong direction. You know, there's ever more focus on technical perfection, which I think has been um, a result of technology. You know, you used to go into a studio, and, and actually my, my first competition recording, I was um, young enough that I did it this way on a reel-to-reel, where the splice mm. was an actual physical splice. You take the tape, you tape it with some yep. tape to the next, and, you know, and you're only going to do that for a couple of spots or maybe one big chunk next to the next big chunk. Now, of course, you can manipulate pitch. You can take one note and drop it in. You can make something inhuman. And in a way, that's artistically amazing. And I'll give you an example of that. Like my lullabies record, right? My first, first billboard number one that I literally made so I could try to put my daughter to sleep. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, I should release this thing. And then, oh, I guess a lot of other parents wanted it too. Um, so this violin lullabies record that I made, the, the pieces were, you know, I mean, very profound and very sophisticated, but technically simple, right? You're playing a slow, short piece. So it doesn't take, you know, a, as much skill to get from the first note to the last with no mistakes as a Paganini Caprice. So, sure. you know, a lot of my takes were what you would call perfect. No errors of tone, no errors of timing, no errors of intonation, no errors of ensemble with the pianist, etc. And I thought, okay, well, the engineer and producer, they're not going to have to do much to this. Just here's this piece, here's this piece, you know, that's done. And by the time they were done, it was amazing because what they ended up, the finished version of each track was so much more gorgeous than any individual take. And it's because what they did is they took the most beautiful of this phrase next to the most beautiful of the next phrase. And all the, it's something that I could probably never actually do live on stage, um, almost inhuman. But not, I don't consider it fakery because I did play all those phrases. I just didn't right. play them in a row. But it's, right. it, what it is actually doing is capturing my ultimate vision of each piece. So it's capturing me not as a physical performer, but as an artist, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Sure. But unfortunately, what a lot of people have taken from that, a lot of players feel a, a certain amount of pressure in the classical realm um, to be as perfect as what's on album. And that's just not possible. Uh, or it's, you can it get closer to possible if you take fewer risks. So now it's all about you know, trying to be absolutely flawless. And then you become more boring. And then it's like, wait, but then what's the point? Like, am I listening to a computer here? And, you know, and then of course there's, you know, the ever more competition. And so people want to do things younger and younger to try to get things going. And so it's like the younger, faster, more perfect. But then it, again, it's like, what's the point in a lot of these and I can say this because I was one. I was a prodigy, but just because I was like super enthusiastic, not because I had some kind of, you know, messed up parents. Um, at least not in that way, right? I mean, everybody's parents <laughs> Everybody have has messed up parents. Everybody's yeah. parents have something, and I'm sure I do too. But um, but you know, they weren't pushing me. They were like, okay, can you sit that thing down? Dinner's getting cold. Or, Don't you want to go ride your bike or something? Um, but um, yeah, the point is, you know, everybody that, that's that's um, very advanced as a young person doesn't necessarily become a professional because, you know, and I always tell parents, it doesn't matter if your kid first learns this piece at age six or age 16. What matters is, are they going to be 36 and have something meaningful to say about it? And the one that learned it at age six might not, and the one that learned it at 16 might, you know, really move you with their performance. 
It's the same thing like when babies learn to crawl, you know, like one maybe learned to crawl at age six months and one at age nine months, but maybe the one that didn't crawl till age nine months becomes the Olympic sprinter because it has nothing right. to do with anything. So there's this unfortunate trend in the classical world um, towards it's almost like an Olympic sport, like, you know, the little gymnasts with all of their tumbles and are the, the skaters with their triple lutzes. And we're doing that on our instrument it becomes not about art. And you see these videos, you know, these popular YouTube videos about, oh, this person is so fast and impressive and so young and fast and impressive. And it's like, okay, well, which one of them moved you? Let's, let's, let's talk about emotion here. Let's talk about music. And um, so I think that that's a really, uh, that's a trend I'm trying to fight against and um, speak out against. And I mean, yeah, you need chop. You do need chops because you need to be in order to express yourself. You have to channel that through your physicality. And if you don't, if you aren't able to play the notes well, then you can't, don't have an outlet for your emotion. But beyond, but but it shouldn't be a goal in and of itself. It should only be a means to an end. And that's what really frustrates me when I see some of these like electric guitar players who are like shredders and they're like fast, 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 boom, 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 boom. I'm like, so? Like you didn't say anything. It would right. be like just doing math words, 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 words. Well, I didn't actually say a sentence. You know what I mean? Nor did I create poetry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but what I have seen, okay, I've been rambling, sorry, but it's, I'm very, very worked up about this sometimes, especially as a parent <laughs> of a young violinist. Perfect. But what I have seen that's super positive is that people are now allowed in our profession to be more creative and to be more diverse um, and diverse in terms of their activities. And it used to be, I mean, I'm, you know, Nigel Kennedy tells the stories about, you know, Dorothy DeLay telling him that he had to be completely in the closet about indulging in jazz violin playing. You know, and now you have Tessa Lark coming out doing, you know, bluegrass alongside her concertos. I mean, we've gone all the way past that um, in terms of early music. When I was starting my career, I was invited to do a big New York concert playing Handel sonatas. And my management turned it down because he said, if people know you're really good at Handel sonatas, they might not book you to play the Tchaikovsky concerto. And I was like, okay. So I had to be like kind of in the closet about being an early music player. And now people are coming out as switch hitters and it's no problem. So the fact that people are being allowed to be improvisers, to be alt styles players, um, to be, you know, do different genres of music, different things with their instrument. I think that's such a healthy development because I really believe that everything you do creatively or imaginatively makes you a better artist at everything you do. I mean, I can't, you know, say like in a direct line that, you know, um, playing Slayer and, you know, jamming on, you know, 12 bar blues solos improved my interpretation of Brahms, but I can say that, um, you know, just being opening myself up to possibilities, then when I am practicing the Brahms Concerto, I might explore more or try more things or think of more options that don't relate directly to the improv that I've been doing, but they do, you know, make me think more deeply about what it is that I'm trying to achieve within the language of Brahms's world. Um, so that's all, you know, super important and a very positive development. And I see that happening more and more that hopefully will overcome this, this, you know, kind of um, impressive automaton trend, and you know that the, the trend that's going alongside that towards the creative player will continue to blossom. And that ultimately, what I want to see is a full circle because when you look at the 19th century, every violinist knew how to improv, every composer knew how to jam. 
you didn't have people who were, I mean, there are people who were, you know, better at one thing than another. Beethoven wasn't, you know, the soloist you would pay to hear. Uh, I mean, as a, as a string player, pianist, he could play a mean piano concerto, but he wasn't like in demand as a violist. Um, but he could play the viola. Um, and, you know, and some performers, you know, their music, their actual music that they composed was second rate. But the point is, everybody did everything. You created and performed music. It all went hand in hand. And there wasn't this, this divide. And I think that that's so much healthier because then you do have more, you're more in tune with your personality. And you think about the great, even into the first part of the 20th century, how individual performers were and how much they're, now, of course, it's good that we're still, that we're looking into urtext and that we're not playing, I mean, in a way, it went too far in the other direction where, you know, one of these great soloists would play Mozart the exact same way he would play Shostakovich, and I say he because they're all men, um, mostly. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's not necessarily advisable, but to have your own personality be a big part of that picture, to, to create some stuff of your own, your own cadenzas, your own encores, um, your own compositions if you want to go as far as that, to be able to jam, to be able to improv. And, and I just think it makes for more interesting performers and um, more well-rounded composers who aren't going to be writing all of this meaningless academic stuff. And it's just such a healthier way for our music environment to exist. One of the things I think about a lot, because I love folk music also, is um, the fact that, you know, when it comes to, for example, Scottish fiddling, people here in the um, 21st century are still writing tunes in the style of the 18th century, which is where the core of our repertoire comes from, and that's considered to be okay. But for some reason in classical music, um, if you're really into, let's say, romantic era pieces or, you know, even earlier, classical period, Baroque period, whatever period of music um, is one of your faves, and you want to write your own pieces in that language, that's considered like, like you're not allowed to do that. That if you're a composer writing in the 21st century, you have to only write in one or another, you know, it can be tonal, thankfully, these days, but it still has to somehow sound like it came from the 21st century. It can't actually sound like it came from a previous century. And it's like everything, and, and I'm like, well, why is everything that could have been said about those languages already been said? In non-classical music, we're still allowed to keep exploring them. And so mm -hmm. I think that's something that needs to be remedied that hasn't started to be remedied yet to approach classical more like we do folk music. But um, yeah, there's just so much going on. And I, I really um, admire those who are kind of on the cutting edge of that, um, you know, the, 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 oh, what's the right word, you know, I, I don't like that term, eclectic string, there's so many terms I don't like, I don't know what I do like, yeah. or post-classical, or, yeah, know, I don't think we've ever creative, figured out what to call ourselves at ASCA, right? Yeah, alt styles, creative strings, I don't know what you call it, but, you know, all of the weirdos, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just the weird kids in the corner, right? Yeah. See, she's not kidding, she really does love metal. Here's an excerpt of her metal medley performed live at the Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp.
And I think um, what I'm, it's been also wonderful to see how the electric instrument is starting to take its place as what I might call a legitimate instrument. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just a plugged-in violin or trying to somehow be a guitar except not as good, but that it's really showing what it can do that is its own thing that n- neither an acoustic violin nor an electric guitar can do, and that it's starting to be used in you know not just country music, rock music, you know whatever obvious genres, but that you're seeing you know of course with Tracy Silverman as a big part of this, but that you're seeing the electric violin being used in classical contexts or mm-hmm. you know as in as as art, not just, you know, popular music or entertainment, but, um, I mean, not that, you know, I mean, you look at what Joe Denenzone's doing with his progressive whatever it is, you know, that's art, of course yeah. that's art, um, all of this is art, but you, you know what I'm saying, um, mm-hmm. the kind of thing that you would call art music normally um, is starting to, um, starting to look at the electric violin as, um, as a member of the family more and more, which is really, really good, and, um, when I think about how I'm raising my daughter, I'm definitely looking towards the future with, you know, what might she need to know in 20 years? And so she's learning how to compose, improv, arrange, um, knowing how to operate the electric instrument and, you know, all her knobs and dials and all of that, knowing how to play various languages of music, knowing all of her classical music, all of her early music, um, and just, you know, being able to participate because frankly it's more fun if you can be part of more stuff and it's also oh, yeah. especially if you're serious about classical it's really important you know with as kind of cutthroat and stressful as the classical world can be and this focus on perfectionism and succeeding and things like that i think it's so healthy to have other things that you can play because the social contexts are different it's um Sometimes it's performed music, but sometimes it's social music. Sometimes it's, you know, people who are all ages or amateurs sitting together with more experienced players, you know, at a pub or all of those things, I think, um, keep you in touch with the true meaning of music, which is to share with each other, whether you're talking about other musicians or the audience, but it's all about giving. It's about sharing. And that's the, the reason we do it. We don't do it for ego, fame, um, you know, financial rewards, you know, any of those things, and we can get sidetracked by those um, and caught up in, you know, reputation to the detriment of um, artistic vision or things like that. But ultimately, it's about um, uplifting people's spirits, um, including, yeah. including our own. <laughs> including our own, yeah. Well, you talked about taking risks um, before, and and I think well, you just did your concerts the other day, your your live stream, where you played something by Earl and something by uh, Doc Wallace. I forget who else you played. Yeah, Edgar Gabriel. You should have him on your show, by the way. One of the greatest blues violinists ever. Yeah, for sure. But but of players of your level, I don't think we know of anybody at that level who takes the kind of risks that you do and saying, well. Oh, I'll play anything. You know, here's <laughs> here's these crazy pieces of music, and and Earl. There's no other way to describe Earl than that he's crazy. And, <laughs> and, and I'm just gonna take this insane piece of music, and I'm gonna play it. And there's just there's a really actually that's one step really further. Cool I'm gonna thing. I'm gonna ask for it to be written so it now exists, and then I'm gonna play it. <laughs> well, and that's my question is that you know there aren't any other players at your caliber that are willing to take those risks. 
So where do you see yourself as advancing, is putting yourself in position to advance the art? You're giving composers a weapon that they wouldn't have. You know, yeah, you're, well, you're allowing people to write things that they couldn't play. Yeah, well, that, that's actually really cool. And um, one great example of that is, you know, my dear friend, Daniel Bernard Romain, who I admire so mm -hmm. much, and he has, writes such great music. Um, but most of his music for violin has, of course, been written for himself. And he's an amazing performer, um, you know, but he doesn't have the complete Paganini toolbox, um, you know, which many people don't. And, you know, he gives amazing performances, you know, with what he's got. And he does things that most people who play Paganini can't do with right. his improv and his style and just his, his, his incredible way that he reaches people with his um, vision. But anyways, um, he wrote a piece for me, and it does have, you know, technical things in there that um, go beyond um, his chops, and it allowed him to do something compositionally um, with, you know, a different boundary, uh, which was mm -hmm. really fun to, to be able to. He wrote this incredible piece for me called Six um, Hip Hop, or it's called Hip Hop Dances and Prayers at Six Movements, and um, yeah, just, just amazing. I hope to record it soon. Um, but yeah, heavy metal, well, there's not that many classical violinists, um, especially of the soloist variety, who are also heavy metal fans. They're, I mean, there's a lot of heavy metal fans who love classical or, you know, sure. whatever, people who like both. But, you know, in terms of, like, violin soloists, like, you know, you're not going to find a, a lot of them turning on Slayer to get themselves, you know, in the mood before they go and perform Shostakovich. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess I'm a little unusual in that way. And, and then when it came to, um, you know, it's interesting how we consider the, the violin to be a classical instrument versus a non-classical instrument. Um, it irks me to no end, you know, these billboard charts that put, um, and, you know, no disrespect to her, but like, you know, Lindsay Sterling, for example, will be on this like classical crossover. And it's like, well, in what way is this classical? because she's playing a completely different genre of music. It just happens right. to use an instrument that is normally associated with classical music, but that would be as crazy as saying that there are classical guitars, so every electric guitarist that plays an electric version of a guitar is right. somehow playing classical crossover. Well, duh, no, they're not. They're playing you know, bebop, or they're playing um, rockabilly, or they're playing you know, thrash. They're not playing classical crossover. So I think it's crazy that when a violinist or, or pianist or whatever plays non-classical, they're seen as playing some kind of version of classical. Um, yeah. But I mean, these, genre, these, these categories are all fuzzy in the first place. It's, you know, it's, it stinks that we have to categorize anything with humanity, whether it's race or, or anything. But um, in any case, um, yeah, so it's, so it's interesting that, you know, and I've always, you know, tried to make it clear that I'm actually not a crossover artist, um, you know, there are plenty of wonderful crossover artists who I greatly admire and respect, but I, that's not where my um, personality lies as a performer. Um, when I'm playing covers of rock songs, you know, Metallica, ACDC, whatever I'm doing on my viol on my Del Jesu, um, either yeah. with a string quartet, you know, that goes into a pub, you know, the night before the symphony performance, with the principals of the orchestra to encourage people to come back the next night. You know, and here, um, you know, the the Sibelius or whatever I'm playing, um, I'm doing that as outreach, but I'm not doing that to create an audience for that crossover music. 
you know, I would like from my performance for perhaps a classical person in the audience to say, ah, I really like that Metallica piece. I'm going to check out the Justice album. Or for um, a rock member of the crowd to say, wow, I really loved that movement of a Shostakovich string quartet they included in their set. Let's check out some more Shostakovich. I'm not trying to get people to listen to m- me playing ACDC on the violin. Um, mm. And when I do it with orchestras, I'm still about, you know, bait and switch. Like, you know, come to hear the rock stuff that you know and love played by a whole symphony orchestra and then accidentally realize that Paganini is super cool. Um, and then right. hopefully come back the next month when I'm long gone and hear a, uh, a Masterworks concert. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was funny because then when I was playing with my actual doom band, um, you know, six piece, so we were like, you know, drums, vocals, bass, two guitars, and me. And I loved, you know, being on the uh, extended range fiddle because. I could, I could, you know, play counter melody to the vocals one moment, join in with, you know, the low guitar riff on the next moment, you know, blast a solo then the next moment. I could like switch it with all these different roles thanks to the the awesomeness of the violin. Um, and people were like, "Oh, you're, you know, adding a classical element to your your metal band," and I was like, "No, I'm playing metal." I'm just playing metal. Now, that being said, of course, metal has a lot of influence from classical music, um, sure. as we all know, and it's been, you know, so fun to be able to hang out with different guys, like, you know, Marty Friedman, when he was lead guitarist of Megadeth, I got to meet him, and he was telling me how into the Izai violin sonatas he was, or Dave Lombardo, um, when he was drummer with Slayer, showing me his his iPad filled with, you know, Berlioz, Rachmaninoff, and Liszt. Um, or even guys you wouldn't expect, like Carrie Kelly from Alice Cooper, right? You think, okay, you know, glam guy, right? And he's like, oh, have you ever played any works by some of the, the pre-Paganini violin virtuosi like Locatelli and Tartini? Uh, I was like, whoa, I did not expect that conversation. Um, but yeah, so but, but when I was with my metal band, I was playing straight up metal. And that was that. And using an instrument that had it, its roots in classical just as did guitar. Um, but then going from the other direction, when you look at the body of classical repertoire from all of these centuries and all of these countries, so much of it has drawn upon influences from music outside of strictly classical. So, you know, the folk music of its time and place, um, whether you're talking about, you know, Dvorak with the um, Czechoslovakian music or Bartok with the Hungarian or Brahms with his, you know, gypsy dances and, um, or, you know, the Brook Scottish fantasy with the Celtic music. Or if you're talking about, you know, 20th century music, so much of it from France, the U.S. and beyond, you know, being inspired by jazz. Um, mm-hmm. So... Then it, it, I, at a certain point, I was like, well, why the heck shouldn't there be classical music inspired specifically by some of the metal subgenres? And there are not that many um, musicians out there who are um, good enough classical composers to write a sophisticated classical piece who are also legitimately a fan of metal music. Um, but you know, the ones that there are, I asked to write me some stuff, and it's just turned out to be amazing. And what I particularly love is that, you know, fellow metalhead who might hear it would like absolutely recognize the influences and think that that's so cool that it's now been brought into this classical concert world. Um, But a fan of classical music listening to the pieces just thinks this is cool modern music that sounds awesome. And again, I don't consider it to be classical in a crossover in the least. When we perform Brahms's Hungarian dances, we don't say we're performing crossover gypsy music. We say we're performing a piece of classical music, Sarasate's Zagoyner any of this stuff. 
Um, and so, I mean, the Brooks Scottish Fantasy is not a crossover fiddle concerto, right? So when Earl right. Minian wrote me a concerto, which I um, premiered with the um, the Phoenix Symphony, and then subsequently played with the Orchestra de la Vertin in Rennes, France, um, almost almost exactly two years ago now. Um, that was just a contemporary concerto, and you know, only he and I knew that you know hardcore was like basically all the ways through it. Right. <laughs> okay, so this is going to end part one of my chat with Rachel. We'll release part two in the next week or so. But since we've talked so much about Earl Manian's concerto, let's listen to Rachel's solo performance of it that she just broadcast live on her Family Friday series last week. Don't shut it down just yet. This is several minutes of explosive metal-inspired music played on a priceless Del Jesu violin. Oh, and as soon as we're done, be sure to like, comment, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And share it with your friends. I mean... Would you deprive someone of this if you were really their friend? So enjoy some amazing music, and we'll see you soon with the rest of Rachel Barton Pine, rock star violinist.